Hello and welcome to episode 235 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox with me in Vienna, Virginia, Ben Olson. Actually, ben. I'm in, t- I'm in D.C. today. Oh shit, you're in D.C.? Yeah, yeah. Nice. Oh yeah, you said you've got the doctor's appointment. Yep. Um, what are you dying of? Uh, Is it coronavirus? <laughs> I don't know actually. No, so I'm going to this new doctor. Have you heard of Forward? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you pay like a monthly subscription, and then you go, and they check. They say they have all this tech. We'll see. This is my first time, so I'm gonna check it out. I thought, hey, for it's not it's not that much. I got a discount. So it's like a hundred dollars a month. I don't know. Seems... And you're gonna go to the doctor every month and have them do tests on you? Well, maybe depends on how this one goes. I mean. Uh, if they give me all the data, quote, that they say they're going to give me, then it might be, yeah, interesting. Because that's one thing I do crave is like I make these changes and then I have no idea what impact they're having because I don't know what's going on in my blood and all that stuff. So I did get a one thing that tests my blood glucose and then like my ketones, but it's still, it's only two data points. And so... I don't know. I'm curious. Constantly biohacking yourself, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's like this thing that it's just come about, and I don't really know why, except um, I started getting interested in intermittent fasting, and then that got me into some books that led me into those books about cholesterol, which we talked about last time, and then now, um, yeah, I'm just kind of on a binge of health-related items that I haven't really thought about at all before, and uh, just hearing all the different arguments for different lifestyles and diets and yada, yada, yada. So I'm curious to see what happens. Well, you enjoy all that. Everybody's got to have a hobby. (laughs) Your own physical health, it sounds like. Yes, yep. Today on the show, we have uh, a review of our own podcast. Okay. Hopefully it's someone saying nice things about us. We have um, a question about prep tests in the 80s. Somebody wrote in to ask because they think they're different. Um, We have a question about Ben's formerly used to exist list of 40 hardest RC passages, which does not exist anymore. So hopefully people will stop asking Ben about that after we talk about this. Um, We have a question about timing for logical reasoning. We have a question about diversity statements. We have a question about bar passage versus JD required jobs, basically picking a law school, whether you should lean on the bar passage rate or on the JD required jobs. And then we have a pretty timely question about wait lists. Um, This show will air on Monday, March 9th. It's too late to sign up for the March 30th LSAT. Your next registration deadline will be, oh, the day after this podcast airs. If you listen to this on the air date, you have one day to register for the April 25th LSAT. Again, the deadline for that is uh, March 10th, Tuesday. Speaking of April 25th, uh, Ben, we are coming back to New York City. We are. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah, excited. Uh, everybody mark your calendars, April 25th and 26th. Registration is open. Um, we've already started to get signups 
just from our newsletters and stuff that we sent out. By the way, you should go to thinkinglsat.com and sign up for our newsletter if you'd like to find out about this sort of thing um, before the before we announce it on the show. The class is going to be one hundred ninety nine dollars. Uh, I think it's technically one hundred ninety five right now. One ninety five. Yeah, yeah, whatever. One ninety five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay, one ninety five, and uh, hundred dollar discount for any demon subscribers. Whether you're a regular subscriber or a premium subscriber, it's a hundred dollar discount. So it's kind of a no brainer to sign up for the demon for a month if you are going to take that uh, New York City class. What test are we going to do? That's a good question. Um, I figured we'd just do eighty nine, but we could do what did we do last time? Past, if you <laughs> I don't wanted. remember. Yeah. Um, I don't think 89 was out, was it, when we did our last joint I think class? it had, like, yeah, it was not out yet. It was, like, two days late. Yeah. So, 89 would be fun if we wanted to, you know, teach that the, the brand newest test together. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, be, be a fun place to start. Let's say that for now, provisionally. We're going to do prep test 89 together. If you're just starting off with your prep, a practice test is the perfect way to start. So, over the course of two days with us, you'll do that entire test one section at a time and we'll cover as many of the questions as we have time to cover of course all the questions are covered in the demon so you will be able to review a hundred percent of the questions using the demon but uh, in class we'll cover as many of them as we can certainly we'll do all four logic games and uh, as many of the other questions as we have time for yeah cool you can register for that at thinkinglsat.com. Space will be limited for that. So if you're sure you want to join us April 25th and 26th in New York, please go ahead and uh, register uh, now to reserve your spot. You can email the show anytime, help at thinkinglsat.com. If you uh, do send us a question or a comment and you want to attach a selfie, uh, you might find your face plastered on our social media. Leave us a review on iTunes if you get a chance. Hit the stars, but also uh, jot down a word or two about the show. It really helps the iTunes algorithm uh, find the show for whatever reason. You want to yeah. tackle these uh, this first uh, review? Sure, yeah. Hi, Ben and Nathan. Please call me anonymous if you care to share this on the show. I started law school in August. You helped me understand the importance of the LSAT and that realization has helped me incredibly. Thank you again. Okay. I write to tell you that I think it's important to continue stressing to applicants that 1L only gets harder. <laughs> Thankfully, okay, <laughs> the path ahead is downhill. Or uphill. I guess uphill. Uphill. Well, it's like downhill, you know, like dang, To negative. hell. Yeah, to hell. But yeah. anyways, yes, uh-huh. it's uphill battle. Here we go. Thankfully, the skills I developed preparing for the LSAT are the exact same skills that allowed me to finish in the top 10% of my class after 1L fall. Cool. That's great. Glad to hear that. I find myself excelling at reading actively, calling BS on judicial opinions, much like I did on LR questions, only to see those same objections later written in a dissent. Perhaps most importantly, law school exams are, like the LSAT, learnable. Everyone in my 1L section studies like a crazy person. However, whereas many of my friends complain that they wasted months with tedious case briefing in order to avoid looking like a fool in class, I spent my valuable study hours applying everything I knew to old practice finals, which, exactly like the LSAT, are best attacked with short, focused application of knowledge into fact patterns, one question at a time. Absolutely no difference from the LSAT. 
On test day, I was calm and confident, chuckling at the other people in the room who had look ha- who looked harried. Harried. <laughs> Side note: the guy with twenty pencils at the LSAT turns quickly into the guy who brings a forty-two inch TV to dual monitor during his finals. <laughs> Wait, what? Wow. I'm not That's even awesome. like. It, <laughs> Oh, that's allowed God. like they have their little uh, laptop right i can't imagine yeah well when i took law school exams there were you know 90 people in the room and it was 89 laptops and one luddite who is writing it yeah in the writing blue book paper. by hand <laughs> yeah uh-huh <laughs> which has to be a mistake obviously but um yeah. That's hilarious. Bringing in an extra, an extra TV so that you could have a, have a second monitor. I mean, man, I, I have seen lawyer friends working with multiple monitors before. I, I know lawyers that just couldn't live without multiple monitors. That's interesting though. Cause I mean, I think you're just, it's like the most basic text app in the world, right? You're just sitting there writing paragraph yeah the test taking app itself for me was just like a very dumbed down word processor yeah but who knows what at this school maybe they're allowed to you know use their own digital notes or whatever huh yeah maybe so uh because otherwise i don't know what the, what the hell you would put on the dual monitors i mean one because <laughs> the t- for me the test itself was a printout they, they gave me paper yeah for the test oh yeah maybe, maybe the test digital. is actually digital mm. now yeah, that's interesting. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, no, okay. Uh, either way, that's a lot to lug into a test. Glad to hear you were that's ready. That's just hilarious to be that guy yeah. and everybody looking at you and stuff. But people in law school gave, give no shits about no, being that guy. No. I mean, they're all just gunners and yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the LSAT gets a bad rap for its disadvantages, which you've discussed at length. I think it's important to let LSAT students know, however, that these skills they're developing are useful during 1L fall when their grades are perhaps more important than they have ever been and they ever will be. The potential rewards are immense. I was 10 years out of undergrad with a 3.1 GPA. Last week, I signed a 1L essay offer, uh, summer associate position, offer that's going to pay me almost $40,000 this summer. Holy shit. Yeah, usually your first summer you're not paid, so that's yeah, that's fucking awesome. The only reason I'm here is because I learned how to get that 174. The LSAT has completely changed my life. Don't pay for law school. Forward slash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is amazing. Yeah. I don't really know what to say. 174. Wow. 3.1 and a 174. I mean... My guess is that this person didn't go to like top, top, top law school. Yeah. But this person did kick ass in their 1L year and it's a good enough school that they do hire summer associates yeah. from there. Yeah. I think the, the fact that this person is a little older might have been an advantage in getting that $40,000 summer job. Yeah. But I mean, a lot of that does come down to grades. So what this person oh, did, right, yeah. is exactly what you're saying. They, they did awesome on the LSAT. They then most likely, I mean, they signed it, don't pay for law school, forward slash. Um, I'm sure that's just a typo, but anyways, uh, they signed it, don't pay for law school. So 
they most likely, like you said, got into some great schools, but then went a little bit lower so that they're going for free. And now because they're going to that slightly lower school, they're also better able to compete. Now they're in the top 10%. Jeez, the money just doesn't stop, right? Like we don't usually talk about the money you could get as a summer associate. Um, yeah. Well, but that that's all part of the flows, career, right? right? That's yeah. like when I was in law school, there were no paid summer jobs. No. 2009 that summer, no way. That's mm-hmm. when I started my business. Thank God there weren't any paid summer jobs. I could have taken some paid summer job and then never started Fox LSAT. And that yeah. would have sucked. Yeah. But, um, you know, the it it comes it, it goes up and down you know i mean we're hearing signs that the market is heating up a little bit who knows whether that'll last forever you know but yeah this is how it used to be that people in the summers would be able to sign these big lucrative contracts but you know it's going to come down to grades and grades are going to come yeah. down to you know yeah. how good you are at this stuff and he's right or or she I, yeah. I've had, I don't know why I think it's a he for some reason, but because you are sexist. Oh yeah, that's why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's funny actually. Sometimes in class, we'll be reading a reading comp passage, mm-hmm. and I'll notice that people will fer- refer to the author as she consistently or he consistently, and I'm like, "There's no evidence in here that this is written by a guy or a girl." Like, mm-hmm. why is it that the class consistently kind of jumps to the conclusion that sometimes it's subject matter? Sometimes I think it's the tone. I don't know what it is. But anyways, that $40,000 is dependent on grades, and it does come from the LSAT. Like, you get better at reading, you're going to do better in law school. Yeah. I mean, the LSAT is basically the stiffest test of English that there is. You know, and and it requires you to take each word very seriously and really understand what words mean and parse some very difficult sentences and some very difficult paragraphs and difficult arguments Mm -hmm. and you can improve on it a lot though. Yeah. Um, so this student anonymous, uh, don't pay for law school forward slash, uh, improved a lot on the LSAT, got all the way up to 174. That indicates immense talent, Mm -hmm. even with undergraduate grades that were a little bit weak uh, I think uh, any sensible law school. I mean, if you had to choose between a 4.0 and a 164 or a 3.1 and a 174, mm-hmm. especially if the student's been out of school for 10 years. Yeah. But even if they haven't, I would bet on the 174. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just like, hey, when we hire Ben, we basically hire based on just all I need is your LSAT score. Yeah. Right. Like, and your email really, turnaround. <laughs> yeah. True. How fast do you get back to us by email? And what's your LSAT score? Yeah. That's all we need to know. Um, the the LSAT score is, you know, it's a really good proxy for a lot of things, including how hard you can work. So if you know the student busted their ass with the demon and got up to one seventy four. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the next thing you know, they're just kicking ass in undergrad or in law school and making $40,000 for a summer. Boy, that summer too is not going to be a lot of work. That summer is going to be so easy. Mm. Like just getting taken out to lunch every day. Yeah. Wined and dined basically. Here's Mm. 40 grand. Hope to see you next summer. Yeah. We'll work your ass off as soon as you graduate. Yeah. (laughs) It's like the movie, the firm. (laughs) Come on board. (laughs) Uh, 
All right. Well, anyway, change your life by changing your LSAT score. You know, work your ass off for three months, six months, whatever it takes. Get yourself the best score you can. Get yourself the best full ride you can. And then go kick ass during your 1L year. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, this, this, it wasn't easy, right? This person's saying, oh, no, it was harder. Yeah. It was harder. It's going to keep getting harder. But, yeah, you, you can uh, change your life, make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Okay, cool. Um, hey, you still hiring uh, for a tutor in D.C.? Yeah, I appreciate the people who have submitted applications, but um, still, you know, kind of going through those. So if you want to apply, please do so. Jobs at strategyprep.com. 99th percent LSAT score, quick email turnaround time. That's what go. we're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, <laughs> jobs at strategyprep.com. Yeah. Okay, here's this question about the prep tests in the 80s. Not Mm -hmm. the 1980s, but prep tests 80 through 89. Um, It says, Hi, Ben, Nathan, and Annalisa. Since the test evolves over time and generally gets more difficult, I was wondering what the major trends are in the 80s and current administrations. So far, the only prep tests I've taken in the 80s have been 81 and 82, and what stuck out to me was that the wrong answer choices seemed to be written much more closely to the right answer choice. Is that something you guys have noticed, or am I just imagining it? I'm a huge fan of the show. Keep up the great work, and praise the demon. Best, Dylan. I don't know if there's something special about the 80s compared to, say, the 70s, but I do feel like the more recent tests, whether that's the 70s and 80s or whatever, uh, the reading comp answer choices do seem closer to me, to each other. I feel like I look at some of the older reading comp answer choices, and you're just like, uh, (laughs) if you were, if you were, unless you were like asleep, this clearly wasn't even talked about. So it's easier in some ways, I feel like, to get rid of the wrong answers on some older reading comp passages. Okay. But other than that, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a lot to say about the the trends. Yeah, yeah. I think with Dylan, I mean, if you've only done eighty one and eighty two, and now you're trying to draw, you know, conclusions, uh, it it's super frustrating (laughs) that I always say. I think once a day, minimum, I tell someone, "Well, but isn't that maybe just a small sample?" Yeah. I'm like a broken record with, well, all right, it could be a trend. Could just be a small sample, though. Yeah. (laughs) That's got to be so fucking annoying. But I say it to everyone all the time. It's just like, well, I don't know. I don't don't know if you have enough data. I mean, my guess is, Dylan, you're looking at a handful of questions, you know, one or two that you missed that are really frustrating to you. And I I don't know that it's something. It's let me put it this way. There's nothing you could do about it. Nothing you can do about it. The only thing you can do about it is, is learn from your mistakes. So yeah. go figure out the ones you got wrong and try to understand them. Yeah. Continue getting better at the at the fundamentals. And you kind of have to just let go of the ones that, you know, hey, there I'll give you full permission. One or two questions from every test you do, you don't even I don't even care whether you understand them or not. Like it's, it's actually okay to give up on one or two questions. You can still score a 180. 
mm-hmm. right? Yeah. If you had perfect understanding of 98 questions on the test, then the other two that you don't understand, if it really is only one or two, then who gives a shit? Yeah. Like it's okay not to know. This actually brings me, this is tangent, but I was listening to this uh, guided meditation the other day. And that was sort of the point of the guided meditation was to just allow yourself to say, don't know, don't need to know. Like, it's just, it's fine. It's okay. Yeah. I I don't have to be able to control every single detail. I don't have to fully understand every single, every shred. Now, I appreciate that lawyers are type A. I appreciate that you're working hard. I appreciate that you want to understand every single thing. But it's totally possible that on one question per test, you'd actually do better if you just let go of that one question per test and worked on the 99 questions per test that are more easily graspable. Sure. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. I mean, that's, I know that, and hey, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you about that one question, the one that's really frustrating you. I'm happy to, I'm happy to spend time on it, but it's like, the truth is it might take a half hour for you to understand it. And in that half hour, you could have, you know, chewed through five other mistakes. Yeah. And maybe it would have been more efficient for you to just let go of those, the ones that you think are super close. Now, if you're trying to do that on 10 questions per test, then now you're given up too easily because I promise you that of those 10, eight of them are very straightforward. Eventually, like they, they, there is a straightforward explanation for eight of those 10. Yeah. But for one or two of them, I mean, hey, I get stuck on questions from time to time, mm-hmm. you know, so and I've been doing this full time for 13 years or whatever it is. So it's like, yeah, maybe it's okay to just not try to control every single facet so closely. Yeah. I don't know. Just an idea I've been thinking about. Yeah. Anyway. Um, thanks Dylan. I don't think they're harder and there's nothing you can do about it. What do you think about this idea? I I do have something to say, I guess about the, the idea that the test generally gets more difficult. I mean, that was in the first line there. We just kind of breezed over it. Yeah. Does the test generally get more difficult? I mean, I think the games have gotten generally easier Mm -hmm. in the last 10, 20 years. In fact, I know they have like the games from 20 years ago are much harder than the games from today. Yeah. So I can't agree with you that the test generally gets more difficult. I do think that if the trend toward everyone getting accommodations continues, they're going to have to make the test more difficult. Mm hmm. Um, because with everybody getting time and a half or double time or unlimited time or whatever, um, I continue to see that most prevalent in my highest achieving, most fortunate, (laughs) unfortunately, it's the most fortunate people who get the most accommodations. It's just the richer you are and the more privileged your background, the more likely it is that you feel yourself, uh, worthy of getting extra time Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) it's just not unexpected for you you're used to getting special treatment you know and and you're used to just working all the advantages i guess i didn't get an a um, so something must be wrong yeah with the testing (laughs) environment therefore i'm not scoring in the 99th percentile yeah i'm used to being elite 
Yeah. I want to be elite. And so I'm going to get extra time. Now, painting with a very broad brush. Of course, some people are perfectly deserving of accommodations. And in fact, maybe, you know, most people who get accommodations. But there are lots of people who are working the system. It's just obvious that people are working the system. And as more people do that, because no one ever gets denied accommodations anymore. Ben, have you heard anyone getting in, uh, getting denied accommodations? I have not. Okay. We've been putting this out on the show for five years now that we've never heard of anybody getting denied accommodations recently. Uh, please email the show if you know of someone or if you did get denied for whatever accommodations you asked for. We'd love to hear about it. Uh, help at thinkinglsat.com. I mean, wrong, that's, but. that's anecdotally, but we, someone emailed in the show, like, I don't know, 10 episodes ago, right? And we were reading the data and the percentage of people who got denied was like extraordinarily small. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. It was like one to 5% or something like that. The I mean, floodgates are open. If, if they're going to accommodate for anxiety, <laughs> like anybody can be anxious. Yeah. So I don't, whatever. Bottom line is that system. it's giving people more time, which is making yeah more people get higher scores. And as they get higher scores, uh, the test writers are almost certainly going to respond so they can push down the curve. And the only way yep. to do that is either to clamp down on accommodations, which they're unlikely to do because they lost that case in the Ninth Circuit. So they'll probably just make the test harder at the same time as they try to invent a new section for the games i don't know i mean there's who knows what's gonna happen <laughs> i don't know ben we just we, we gotta make hay while the sun shines 10 years from now maybe this whole thing won't, won't exist anymore yeah <laughs> that'll be we'll be forced into retirement yeah i mean if i were to look at the three this person asks you know has the test gotten harder generally over time i would say Reading comp has gotten slightly harder. Games are slightly easier. Logical reasoning seems to stay about the same. So overall, it's about the same. But, um, you know, if I really... You definitely have tests that pop out that are, like, easier and tests that are harder where there seems to be more groaning um, and then others where there seems to be less groaning. I don't know if that's just my students or I don't know. But, yeah, I, I don't feel like... There's much more to that. There's certainly a degree of randomness. Yeah. I, it's small, small samples. So Yeah. All right. Thanks, um, Dylan. You wanna, yeah, thank you, Dylan. Do you want to handle this sure. email about reading comp? Yeah, so this person writes, Ben, this is from Cam, I heard you mention on the show before that you compiled a list of the 40 hardest RC passages. I was curious if you could send me a link to the list. Okay, so a little background here. A long time ago, before the LSAT demon, I had a book of the hardest old reading comp passages because I thought that reading comp was getting harder. Mm -hmm. uh, and I put that together in a book and the book actually was ordered from the easiest reading comp passages to the hardest ones within those top 40. I have, after creating the demon and like a couple years ago, we just stopped publishing this book. So unfortunately I don't have the book anymore I could probably dig it up somewhere, but I really don't see any value in that now that the LSAT demon exists because, look, if you really should be doing the hardest reading comp passages, then go into the demon, start drilling, and it will give those to you. But there's a lot of people who are seeking this, Cam. You're not the only one who asks about this. I get emails about this every now and then. <laughs> and the people who are looking for these hard reading comp passages 
aren't really the ones who should be getting them, right? They're, they're not getting 100% correct on the ones that they're encountering. And so giving them harder ones doesn't necessarily solve the problem. You got to get good. I'm not saying that's true for you, Cam. I have no idea. Maybe you're totally ready for these. But that's great. The demon will figure that out very fast. Uh, if you get everything correct in the passage you do, it's going to give you a harder passage the next time you try to do a reading comp passage. And then it's going to give you a harder one and a harder one until you're you're doing all of those, quote, 40 hardest. And by the way, the demon has tons more. So I don't know. I guess these days I just say, hey, sorry. <laughs> We don't have that book anymore. It doesn't really make sense to print. It's better just to do it in the demon. Yeah. I mean, it'll update itself. That list will change over time as it already has. Yeah. Yeah. Has some people get them right and other people get them wrong. And then certain passages come in and out or new tests come out. Mm -hmm. There could be one on prep test 89, right? That's that the demon thinks is the hardest RC passage. And so, uh, no need to continue asking Ben for that list of hardest reading cup passages. Just go ahead and do the demon. I was also yelling at a, a tutoring student of mine the other day that, you know, she wanted to like do the, the, she was asking about doing the, um, filtering in the demon, like mm. turning off, turning just, Oh, what if I only work on, you know, again, small sample. She thinks she's bad at weekend questions and, must be true questions because of her most recent, like one practice test. Oh, that's tough. Cause I mean, which, you're only going to get like a handful of each of those anyway. I know. And maybe it was a couple practice tests, whatever. Yeah. Exaggerating, but it's like, so she thinks she has this weakness that she might not even have. And then she's wanting to go into the demon and filter and only do, um, logical reasoning questions of those two types. And I'm like, you know, um, the demon will do that for you automatically. It, mm-hmm. it, the demon's watching all of your practice tests and all of your practice sections. Mm-hmm. And the demon is feeding you questions that are not only of the right difficulty, but also of the right type mm-hmm. based on your mistakes and based on the prevalence of those questions on the test. Yeah. So I just don't think people need to try to control it. I think you can just go into the demon and the basic formula is one day you do a practice section and review the next day you do drilling. Yeah. And every time you go back to drilling, the demon will be like, okay, cool. I got new data on you. You know, mm-hmm. yesterday on your practice test, you missed a bunch of these or yesterday on your practice test, your level was this. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm going to feed you questions that are at the optimal level. That's going to lead to maximum performance. Yeah. Right. Or maximum improvement. Yeah. All right. Anything else for cam? No. Thanks for your uh, interest, but I would say go to the demon if you're game. So, All right. Here's a question uh, from L. This says, just the letter L. Uh, this says, hi, Ben and Nathan. I'm not improving on my timed sections for LR because I think I'm going too fast. Okay. Is that Maybe. you're <laughs> Maybe. scoring? You're not scoring as well as you like because you think you're going too fast? Or you're not, anyway, that sentence is broken. Um, For whatever reason, I think it's acceptable to finish the section with only 50% accuracy. (laughs) What? What? (laughs) I know. I read that and I was like, what? Like the the needle just like came scratching off of the record when I read that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like if you finish this, let me be real clear. If you finish the section with 50% accuracy, that sucks. Like, that's terrible. Well, I hope 
who knows what L? I'm assuming L means fifty percent accuracy of the ones that she. No, finish the section. For whatever reason, I think it's acceptable to finish the section with only fifty percent accuracy. Yeah, that's weird. Listen, if you do twelve questions out of twenty-five and guess on the remaining questions, your overall accuracy for the section will be greater than fifty percent. Yeah. 50% 50% accuracy, if you do all 25 questions and you only get half of them right, that sucks. That's not, it's not even partially okay. That's terrible. Yeah. You could do far less work. You could focus on just the easy questions. You could get all of the easy questions right, and you could dramatically improve your score. So <laughs> just instantly, like it's the easiest way. I mean, this is another thing. This is just a broken record again. I mean, I'm going to start doing this as like a preamble to every single one of my classes, by the way. Like, I mean, every day of class, yeah. I'm going to like start class with a lecture about the importance of accuracy over speed mm-hmm. because I can't believe how people persist in just doing too much work and not getting paid enough for it. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, uh, it's maddening because you're trying hard. You're trying super hard, but you're just, you're, you're not doing the work. You're not finishing the job. You're not getting all the way to the right answer. You're getting almost there. Oh, it's gotta be one of these two. I'll just pick that one. Okay, great. Next. Yeah. Just so that you can finish the section and then you finish the section and oh yeah, I got, I got 12 points. Yeah. (laughs) Like nice. You should have had 12 points after 20 minutes or 25 minutes. Like if you just had gone slower on the easier questions, you wouldn't have made so many stupid mistakes. Like Ben, how many stupid mistakes did you make if you did 25 questions and you only got 12 or 13, right? (laughs) Uh, For real, like 12. Yeah. At least 12. No, I mean, well, I wouldn't say that all 12 of those mistakes are like stupid mistakes because some of those questions that you did are actually hard, especially near the end of the section. You did well, a bunch true, of the hardest some, questions. You're getting some right that you probably shouldn't have gotten right. Oh, <laughs> I see. Okay, yeah, no, I mean, that's a good point. Like, even the ones you got right, you probably got right accidentally. And yeah, yeah, that's a totally valid point. So, okay, so yeah, so you <laughs> you did the whole section, you got half of them right, but on at least half of the questions, maybe more, you made stupid mistakes. It's just that some of those you got right accidentally. <laughs> oh, hey. That's awesome. By the way, I should say here too that, you know how last time we were talking about the negative or the downsides to trying to <laughs> guess what you should bubble in for those letters right yes like Uh people people focus on the like slight benefit and they don't think about the like huge negative costs well here um i think there's a big you're you're real you're not just not doing as well as you could have uh you're hurting yourself because anytime you practice something in a way that results in a negative answer right like or you get it wrong like anytime you practice something and you get it wrong there's this potential there that you're reinforcing a habit or a behavior that ultimately you don't want right like so you're going fast and you're getting used to going fast and getting things wrong and it's like your brain's like okay this is what you want to get good at got it it doesn't know that like oh it, it just like gets good at whatever you keep repeating 
And so if you slow down and start getting them right, then it's like, oh, okay, so you want to do this. And then it will naturally get faster as you start getting them right because it's like, oh, well, here's the answer. Do you want to keep sitting here thinking about it? Or like we figured it out. That's the answer. Let's go to the next one. Yeah. You have to train yourself to actually get the questions right. You have to train yourself to understand them, to get all the way to understanding. Yeah. This email continues. It says, do you suggest I do a timed section and use the whole time to answer 15 questions? Then as I get more accurate, increase how many questions I answer in the 35 minutes. I absolutely need a better way to approach the sections. Thanks for the podcast and the demon. I appreciate all of your help. Thanks L. Um, you know, I don't know about this timed section and use the whole time to answer 15 questions, although it's a hell of a lot better than what you're doing now. Yeah. I I would think that if you spend all 35 minutes on just 15 questions, I hope you can get 13 of those right. And if you do, you would then randomly guess on questions 16 through 25. That's 10 guesses. You're going to guess randomly. You're going to get 20% of those right. That's two guesses correct. And now your score is 15 points. So your score had been 12 or 13 points, but now your score is 15 points. And all you did was slow down and get the easy ones right. And you start developing good habits of like going through the steps in the right way. Habits of actually fucking understanding the question. Yeah. <laughs> like reading it carefully enough to not misread stuff, reading it carefully enough to see how they're structuring their argument and probably start predicting the correct answer. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, to go back actually to um, Dylan's question about whether the tests in the 80s are harder. Mm -hmm. I can't believe how predictable the test, even like prep test 89 of course, you can point to one or two questions that are really difficult, but there are so many questions on the brand newest tests where if you just read the argument, only the argument, mm -hmm. and you just attack, before you even read the question, you just read the argument and you just attack the argument and you go, wait, your evidence is this, but your conclusion is that? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a gap there. Uh, is this the same thing as that? Yeah. Because your premise is about this and your conclusion is about that. <laughs> and you're just all over the right answer. Like you mm -hmm. totally have predicted the right answer by just attacking the argument. And I do think for L that if you slow down and just try to do 15 questions, maybe 15 is too much for you. I mean, you're only getting half of the questions in the section right in 35 minutes. Yeah. Maybe you should try to only attempt half the questions and see how that goes. Now, I'm not saying like take extra time unnecessarily. I, d I just don't think you need to do that. I think you need to just do question number one and be sure you've gotten it right before you move on to question number two. Yeah. Um, anything else for L? No. You're going to improve faster, L, if you slow down and start getting them right. Yeah. Like I'm when I see someone who does the whole section and gets half of them right, I'm like, "Oh boy, this is going to be a challenge." Like it's going to be real hard for you to improve if you persist in doing that because you're half-assing it. You're skimming the surface, you're not actually understanding what you're doing. Yeah. Even the ones you're getting right, you're not understanding. You're just not. You can't. Yeah. You have to get to a point where you know what it feels like to have something click. 
and yep. understand it. I was trying to say this last night, actually, to my class about reading comp. I said, look, um, I don't want to focus too much on timing here, but I would say that I probably spend about 40 to 50% of my time, probably like 40, yeah, 40 to 50% of my time on a set of questions in reading comp, reading the passage. Yeah. Like I, I, I'm sitting there reading it and then I go through the answers and I'm like, oh yeah, I don't remember where that was discussed. I just know that was discussed. I remember yep. getting a little upset about that or being confused or whatever. And so that's what it feels like to go through reading comp questions and be able to pull the answers from your head. As you're reading the answer choices, you're yep. like, oh, I totally remember that. They said that. Or no, they didn't say that. They said the opposite of that. And a lot of people are going through and it's like they don't fully grasp it. So there's a lot of like, ooh, I think that sounds right. And then they're like going back and they're scanning. That's not, you're not doing the test right. And if that's how it feels to you, that's wrong. Yep. And that happens in miniature on each of the logical reasoning questions. If you spend enough time or if you spend enough attention and you reach an understanding of what argument is actually being made and whether it's good or bad, most of the time it's bad and you've got to be able to tell them, Hey, this is outright flawed or it's incomplete. And if you can say why it's flawed or why it's incomplete, you've already answered the question. And then by the time you read the question and then go into the answers, it's just like, Nope, Nope. Yup. Nope. Nope. Great. The answer is C next. Yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. it's shocking. I mean, I go through the wrong answer choices so quickly because I've spent the time to just attack the argument in the first place. Yeah. And on reading comp, you go through the questions very quickly because you've taken all the time that was required to understand what was actually in the passage. You've comprehended the passage. Yeah. Same thing happens on games. You know, you build worlds or you make inferences, you know, you really build a strong setup where Mm -hmm. you've solved the system. Yeah. You solve that system and then you go through the questions, bang, bang, bang. Um, Everybody needs to slow down. I, I, again, in 13 years of doing this full time, I've never told a student that they need to go faster. (laughs) Not once. Yeah. I have told every student I've ever worked with that they need to slow down and focus on accuracy. Next one. Yeah. Hello. I just have a quick question about diversity statements for law school. What are the general guidelines for what qualifies someone to be able to write a diversity statement? I started at quarterback. (laughs) Okay. I started as a quarterback for a division. No, no, at quarterback. Okay, I started at quarterback for a Division One football program, <laughs> and I was wondering if that would qualify. Uh, and that just, I got to, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, it's always all in the execution, but. That to me seems like exactly the opposite of what they're looking for. (laughs) I mean, that just sounds like I'm a white male. Now, you know, there's a bias, Ben. There's there's long been a bias against black quarterbacks. I don't know if you know that, but there's like a bazillion black players in the NFL, and only recently have there has it started to be like acceptable to. I mean, it's amazing how backward the NFL is, right? Mm -hmm. But it's only recently that it's actually been acceptable. Like, oh yeah, black people can play quarterback too. Yeah. So when I hear some random person that I don't know your race, and you're telling me that you started quarterback for Division One football program, I'm like, oh, so you're a white male. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's probably not what they're looking for. Now, if you were a black quarterback at a Division One football program, um, you could definitely write your diversity statement about that. But that's also you're just black, and you could write your diversity statement about that. Yeah, and you probably wouldn't be emailing the show asking this question. <laughs> no, I don't think you would because you'd have <laughs> a very clear case for diversity. That you know, you just all you got to do is basically tick that box, and you know, okay, write a bit about it, of course, but you're checking the box and a lot of the diversity initiatives that the law, the law schools are very serious about trying to diversify racially because they are so goddamn white. Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, they really do want to try to get um, blacks and Latins, Latinxes into, um, into their programs. They really do. And so if, if that's you, you can just say that on your application and you're fine. (laughs) I can't imagine starting at quarterback for a division one football program sounds like a pretty good personal statement, actually. Yeah, it does. I mean, D one football is a big deal and mm-hmm. your quarterback of the team, like that's a big deal. And I think you could just go ahead and write your personal statement about that potentially. But I, uh, <laughs> I'm diverse because I did the traditionally because I excel most white male <laughs> thing. If that's what you could possibly do. Yeah. Okay. Well, Gunther continues, I understand this is not the traditional instance of writing a diversity statement, but I also know there aren't many people who have done that who are also going on to attend law school. Hmm. Okay. No, it it is different, but that's just not the kind of diversity that they're looking for. Mm. No way. That's like, I was valedictorian. Should I write about that on my diversity statement? Because there can't be that many valedictorians. It's like, no, that's not, (laughs) that's an achievement that you can highlight on your resume and you can highlight in your personal statement. It does seem like a great personal statement topic. Sure. Totally. Because you can subtly say, look, I'm, I bring, you know, this sports perspective background to the table um, a lot of my peers will not have been so involved in a football. Yeah, program. you don't need to say any of that. Of course, you don't need to say <laughs> I mean, any of that. It was just obvious, right? From your as soon as you, if you start writing your personal statement about being a quarterback at a D one football program, I would go. I've never read a personal statement about being a quarterback at a D one football program. Yeah. So you're a different, unique. You are now the quarterback of the team. And that's a theme that I have never seen. By the way, please don't start writing your personal statement about how you were the quarterback of your high school team or quarterback of, you know, junior college or quarterback of your division four or whatever. I don't, none of that is going to be an achievement that's going to impress me. But if you legitimately played at some big time football program, sure, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. All right. He continues. This may just be one. Oh, this may just be more of a thing to include on a resume and or personal statement, but I figured it couldn't hurt to ask. Thank you for your help when you get a chance, when you get the chance. Yeah. Yep. I think we answered your question. Thanks for writing in. Best. Gunther. Gunther. Um, Yeah. Let's not, let's not write your personal, let's not write a diversity statement about being a quarterback. I could see uh, that actually seems like it would be one where I can imagine someone in an admissions office being offended by it being like, Oh my God, look at this guy. You know, you don't want to get yourself into that binder that we talk about the one that they bring out at the holiday parties when they laugh at people's applications. Yeah. I just, I could see that. I mean, I'm glad Gunther wrote in 
so that we could say, nah, let's not do that. <laughs> but I could just imagine that being the type of thing where they're like, hey, remember that guy who thought that he was diverse because he was the quarterback of his <laughs> college football team? Yeah. And I mean, it is it's too much of a punchline. I don't I don't think you want to stand out in that way. Now, on your personal statement, by all means, but diversity statement, let's let's give that a hard no. Okay. Uh question about bar passage rate versus JD required employment rate. Hey, Ben and Nathan, I've been looking at a lot of ABA reports since I began listening to the podcast. They have definitely made me rethink some of the schools on my list. At what point does a bar passage rate become a red flag for you? I'm looking at schools with a 70% to 85% bar passage rate. While 75 seems pretty good, that means a whole quarter of your class won't pass the bar exclamation point. Is that something to be worried about? Or does that seem standard for law school? No, that's standard, right? I, that's what I would expect the rates to be in California. 75% is like kind of good. Yeah, it but. is sad. It's a sad fact, but I think that's reality. I think the only time you're going to see higher numbers than that are the, the real elite schools. Yeah. That's also probably first time, um, you know, some people do pass on the second or third yeah. or beyond attempt. I mean, of course it's a declining percentage of people who pass on each subsequent attempt, but, mm-hmm. um, ultimate bar passage rate is going to be higher than whatever that first time bar passage rate is. I think Esther is misunderstanding. I'll, I'll finish the email here, but I think she's kind of misunderstanding the game a little bit. Okay. So I think this is a good question to discuss. Yeah. Um, what do you give more weight to bar passage rate or JD required employment rate? Here are two examples. University of New Mexico has an 85% bar passage rate, but only 67% of graduates obtain a JD required job. 85% seems like an impressive bar passage rate for a school ranked in the nineties. But if you can't get a JD required job, does that even matter? Similarly, Denver ranked in the sixties has a 75% bar passage rate, but a 64% JD required employment rate. Oh, I thought she was going to provide like a flip to, yeah, that's not a flip. That's two. I don't think you can are, provide a flip though. Right. Because you have to pass yeah. the bar to get this. Well, okay. This is, law schools in two different states. So one thing that, you know, Esther needs to pay attention to is how difficult the actual state bar is. Mm-hmm. Most people who go to university of New Mexico are going to take the New Mexico bar. Most people who go to school in Denver are going to take the Colorado bar. I don't know what the bar passage rate is for New Mexico versus Colorado. Maybe they're the same, This is, but they could be. I, I have a feeling that the Colorado would be harder. I have no idea why, but I just, yeah. assuming it is <laughs> right. Just because Colorado is, like a place that people want to live. It um, seems a little bit more urban. You have more people, therefore you're going to have more competition. Right. Right. Um, worrying about the bar passage rate of the school only matters if you're like an average or below applicant at that school. If you're following our advice of don't pay for law school, I don't think you really need to worry about the bar passage rate of the school. Because if they're giving you a scholarship, they're not giving you a scholarship to fail the bar. They're giving you a scholarship because they know you're going to be successful. Or at least, you know, probabilistically, they know that you're more likely to be successful than the other people at that school. So I think people just, they, they think that, oh, if I go to a school that has a 60% bar passage rate, then that means that I have a 40% chance of failing the bar. But it absolutely does not mean that if you 
got a full ride to that school. Yeah. And if yeah. you could have gotten into a better school, right? Yeah. So I just, I hope that our listeners understand this difference that it's the bar passage rate of the school has almost nothing to do with the actual education that's happening at the school. No, it has to do with how, <laughs> uh, the quality of the applicants going to the school. Yeah. So it tells you more. It's, it's not, it's a, it's an effect, not a cause, but the JD required employment stuff, I think is more closely tied to oh, the school. T- totally. Because yeah. And I mean, and they both have to do with, selection bias up front. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Neither of those things have anything to do with the actual quality of education that's going on at the school. <laughs> we yes. should be really clear about that. Yeah. It's just nothing to do with it. Yeah. It's an academic competition and it starts with the LSAT or it started with your undergraduate grades, but it continues with the LSAT. And by the time you get into school X, half of the game is already over. Mm-hmm. The fact that you're at this school means that you have certain attributes and, but it's not, but there's a big difference in the top of the class and the bottom of the class. Yeah. So the reason why we hammer so hard on don't pay for law school is that if you don't pay for law school, you really, I mean, Hey, I'm not saying the bar is going to be easy for you, but if the bar passage rate at the school is 70% and you're there on a full ride and they only give full rides to 10% of the class, then they're not worried about you failing the bar. If you, if you have a problem to failing the bar, you've got much bigger problems with your like potential as a lawyer. Yeah. So I don't know. I, it's just, it's very clear to me that if you go to school with a full ride, you don't have to worry about it. The only people who have to worry about it are the people who are going to pay. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to pay, I just think you're doing it wrong. I, I can't imagine. I, I just cannot imagine advising someone to pay for law school. Yeah maybe Harvard, Stanford, Yale, or maybe the other schools in the top 14, you know, if you're a Michigan resident or if you want to be a Michigan resident, by all means go to Michigan. And if you have to pay to go to Michigan, okay, I'm not worried about your life as a lawyer. I think you're going to be successful. Yeah. But for everyone else, anything for sure, anything outside the top 14, just why would you pay money for that? You don't Mm -hmm. have to, you can go to a basically identical school just slightly lower in the rankings. You yeah. can get a scholarship. You can kick ass while you're there, like anonymous at the top of the show. <laughs> end up, <laughs> end up getting great job offers, having a much better time of it in law school, and not having to worry about things like getting jobs and passing the bar. Yeah. To answer this question specifically, which would you give more weight to? I mean, I think you're saying don't worry about the bar passage rate. I would say that the JD required employment rate sure. tells me something because it tells me, okay, like the higher that is, the more employers are willing to go to that school and hire people. And so it's telling you something about the school that is a little bit out of your control. Although the same principle applies, just as you said, if you're in the top of your class, you're going to do better than everyone else trying to get a job there. At the same time, if that number is extraordinarily low, it's like people maybe not even looking at that school. So you need you're going to have to yeah. hustle more to get a job. Yeah, and so that is something to keep in mind. And that number is always or it should always be lower than the bar passage rate. Yeah, so those I mean you're going to have to hustle anyway. Right? Yeah. yeah, they're not going to be beating down the door to you. I mean, I remember Allie at our last class in in New York, attorney Allie Roselle telling us about how the recruitment shit went down at for NYU law. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, like renting out all the suites in an entire hotel and just like going room to room to room to interview mm-hmm. with employers. But even then, you know, she was busting her ass to even to get those interviews, right? Send in resumes and letters and just hustling. I mean, those, those people are hustling yeah. hard. Yeah. So you're going to have to hustle no matter where you go. I, I guess it, one thing that might be worth pointing out is that if you go to a school that has a JD employee, uh, a bar passage rate of 50% or a, or a um, JD required job uh, rate of 50%. Mm-hmm. That does mean that like half of the people you go to school with are not going to be successful. Yeah. So you're, you're walking into a network that's not going to be as beneficial to you. Well, at least the people that you're with in one L and two yeah. L like mm-hmm. half of them are going to fade away and not mm-hmm. be lawyers and not be useful to you in your legal career. And it yeah. might be sad because you're going to make friends with these people. They're good humans. They're just not <laughs> They're going to be actual practicing <laughs> lawyers. I mean, you know, <laughs> sorry, it's just not going to work out for them. You can fail at the bar and still be a good human. <laughs> oh, it might I mean, actually hey, be, there might be a reverse. Like exactly. Do you want the, hey, all the lawyers or all the non-lawyers? <laughs> Where are the good humans? Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Pretty clear which camp I would be leaning toward, but that, I could see that being kind of depressing for mm-hmm. some people. Then again, if you're like going to be an actual successful ass kicking lawyer, you probably just don't care. Yeah. You're like, yep, I know. I'm used to kicking ass. Yep. Uh huh. First day of class. Yeah. Half of you are not going to be lawyers. I am though. Yeah. I'm here on a scholarship, by the way. Thank you for paying my tuition. Can't wait to compete with you in grades at the end of the semester. That'll be sweet. Uh, cause I have a better undergraduate GPA than you do. And I have a better LSAT score than you do. And I'm going here for free. And then I'm going to kick your ass on the final exams. And then that $40,000 summer job, that's mine. Yeah. Not yours. That's how it is. I mean, that's just the game. So, but I, I do want to say, I just, I I hear this far too often. This is a myth that needs to be debunked. The bar passage rate of the school you go to is not your bar passage rate. The bar passage rate of the best school you can get into. Now that might be your bar passage rate, but you don't have to go to that school in order for that to be your expected bar passage rate. Well, wait, maybe not the best school you can get into, but like the school in which your numbers conform with the median score. Sure. The the middle, right. If you're at the 50th percentile LSAT and GPA, let's say that, Mm -hmm. then you're, you know, then whatever their bar passage rate is, that's probably your expected bar passage rate, whether or not you actually attend that school. Yeah. That's the part that people don't understand. It doesn't matter whether you actually go there because the education that happens during those three years is not actually preparing you for the bar. It's an academic competition. It's a different thing that's started to change somewhat. We think lower ranked schools are now starting to kind of do a little bit more actual education for the bar. Yeah. But most of the top schools, you know, they just, they fancy themselves and I mean, top schools, top 100 schools, most of them fancy themselves national law schools. And they're just, they're going to do the typical same old thing of like rhapsodizing about constitutional law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just not actually going to be specifically training you to pass your state bar. Yeah. Okay. Did we beat that one up good enough? Yeah. Thanks, Esther. Yeah. Thanks, Esther. Um, Yours? Mine? I think it's mine. I can't remember, but I can read it. 
Anonymous, Anon, says, I've been waitlisted by a couple of schools, and I'm wondering how to respond. I have a solid full tuition from offers from other schools, but I'd like to consider as many offers as possible. One, what are the admissions offices looking for before they admit waitlist applicants? Waitlisted applicants. Two, are waitlisted applicants less likely to receive scholarship funding? Thanks, Anon. Um, interesting. Okay, thank you for your concise email. This <laughs> is like right to the point. Um, this cycle, think? well, all we have is anecdotal evidence. This cycle seems like there are more schools doing that move of waitlisting everybody. Mm-hmm. We won't know until the end of the cycle how this actually all shakes out. It's still only March 3rd. There are literally, let's see, April, May, June, July, August. There's still at least five more months. Or five, yeah. At <laughs> most five, five more months. Huh? At most five more months? At most five more months? Yeah. There are least. five more months. Sorry. <laughs> March, April, May, June, July. No, because it can go into August. Okay. Sure. I mean, there's not six more months because that gets us to September 3rd, <laughs> but there there's five solid months mm-hmm. before you have to be there at school. Yeah. And so the fact that you're on the wait list now just doesn't, I don't think it means jack shit. It, it we had, we had examples. I mean, I, I know that there have been schools that in some years have put every single person on the wait list before they eventually decided to admit them. Yeah. So it's all just a negotiation. It's all just a game. Are you less likely to receive scholarship funding? Taking the second question first, if you're a marginal candidate, then you're less likely to receive scholarship funding. I can see them putting you on the wait list as a negotiation technique to try to offer you less scholarship money. It's like this idea of, Oh my God, this is so gross. Have you heard of negging? Do you know what negging is Ben? Negging? No, I do not. Okay. This asshole, his name is, he calls himself mystery. He wrote this book. I can't remember what it was called. It was a, basically he, he fancied himself a pickup artist And so he Mm. would go out to bars and try to pick up girls. Okay. It's gross. It's like the most distasteful thing ever. I'm sure that this dude has been canceled by now, which is great. This is a show or something. No, he wrote a book. He wrote wrote an actual book about like how to go pick up girls. And one of the things that he would do is actually insult the girl. So Uh, he'd go up to like mm -hmm. a group of girls at one girl that he likes and he'd like start talking to her friends and complimenting her friends and then like go out of his way to say something negative toward the girl that he actually likes. Mm. Okay. And this worked? Uh, I don't know. It makes me want to vomit to even think about it. But I think that the idea was he's like, oh yeah, I'll make them. They'll think I'm more desirable or, you know, it's basically like taking them down a peg. Mm-hmm, so that mm-hmm. you can put yourself in a position of superiority over them. Sure. So that then they can try to impress you. I don't know. It's disgusting. It's fucking gross, right? So then this guy went into law school admissions. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> law school admissions <laughs> read his bullshit book and decided to start doing this. I don't know. It just, it actually makes a lot of sense from a law school perspective. If you want a candidate, but you're like, ah, damn, you know, they're, they're overly qualified for this school. Like this is the typical person that I would, 
I'm sure they're applying to other schools. I, you know, I, I want to, I want to get them, but I don't want to have to let them come for free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Put them on the wait list. Yeah. See what really they do. You, you accomplish two goals, right? With that. If, if someone's above your numbers, even slightly or a lot above your numbers, if you put them on the wait list, you get that sense. They're going to come back to you and be like, whoa, wait, hold on. You don't want me like that badly? What's going on? And maybe they won't expect as much in terms of scholarship funding, which is what you're talking about right now. And apparently this is called negging, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, that should be canceled too. I'm really sad that I brought this up on the show, but I, uh, it's just, I think it's instructive. I could totally see them doing that. Yeah, so th- they accomplished that goal. And if you don't ever get back to them, then their fears are confirmed, right? They're like, oh, you're just going to go somewhere else. We're going to admit you, and then you're going to say no, and that's going to hurt our yield. So we accomplish both goals with one move. Um, We really get to test whether you want us. And if you do, then you're going to come back, and you're going to be like, hey, I'm interested. What's going on? And more vulnerable to accepting a lower scholarship offer, if anything at all. Because maybe you say, sure, we'll, we'll accept you. And you're so excited that you got off the wait list, you are willing to pay full freight. Totally. Yeah. And so to, to maybe transition into the first question that Anon is asking, what are admissions offices looking for before they admit waitlisted applicants? There is this, it's like a, it's like a, a step in the dance. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just like a routine thing, a letter of continuing interest yeah people abbreviate it as Mm (laughs) l-o-c-i it's just and all it is it's very formulaic you basically just write them a letter and say yes i'm interested in coming to your school thank you know thank you for putting me on your wait list i'm excited to come to your school yeah and And if you have anything to say of substance like since you applied you add that sure you can offer to provide them additional information you can tell them oh i have this uh, extra letter of recommendation i'd be happy to send you if you're interested just whatever just be professional and let them know that you're actually interested in going to their school yeah because if they waitlisted you for yield protection then yeah they they they're going to like require that you take that step of mm-hmm. writing that letter yeah we saw recently with one of our unlimited consulting students she was asking about, or she had a line. We were editing her, her letter together. Yeah. She had that line in there about, um, I would go, I would surely attend your school if admitted. Yeah. Maybe it might be useful for us to kick that around a little bit. Cause I, I can see that as a yeah. double edged sword. We were, we were debating like, I definitely dropped, I think the, modifiers right the adjectives like i think she said very excited or yeah like you said definitely would be admitted it's like okay well let's get rid of the definitely let's get rid of the very and and tone this down so it doesn't seem like you're jumping up and down in the room like oh my god i'm so excited to be on your wait list like no but i at least i i hesitated to take it out entirely because i did feel like it, it it accomplished this goal of saying look i i am I am excited about going to your school and you want them to feel confident that if they accept you, you'll accept without sounding desperate. It's like, yeah, dating. if, if they, <laughs> yeah, if they wait listed you for yield protection, yeah, then 
you know, sounding enthusiastic, like, yes, I would definitely come to your school if you admit me. I think it achieves your goal of like getting off the wait list. They'll probably admit you. Mm -hmm. But then it has this counter purpose of, and they might've waitlisted you as a scholarship negotiating tool. Mm -hmm. You know, they, maybe they wanted to insult you, wanted to make you feel a little bit less about your chances, make you feel a little less worthy of a scholarship, you know, make you feel, Oh, I would be so lucky to get into this school. Yeah. So if you're raving about how, you know, the school's your number one choice, you would definitely attend if you were accepted. I do think, I can see how that would get you in, but also get you a worse scholarship offer. Now, of course you can always still negotiate. Yeah. So maybe that's not the end of the world, but you know, negotiations do tend to get anchored on the first offer and they're probably going to make the first offer when they admit you. And if their first offer is zero, then you're starting from zero. Yeah. I could just see that being a tougher negotiation. They also could be waitlisting people so that the negotiation period takes longer or so that, so that there isn't as much of a negotiation period. If they know that people are going to negotiate, mm-hmm. I could see them waitlisting people. I don't know. It's an evolving system. Yeah. We have seen people get scholarships off the waitlist. You can certainly negotiate for whatever you want. Worst case you get in off the waitlist, no scholarship and you just tell them, Oh, Sorry can't do it Mm -hmm. either go to another school or reapply next year. I don't know. Anything else we want to say about letters of continuing interest or what, what to do when you're on the wait list? No, just reach out to them. Uh, I hear a lot of people who get waitlisted and they don't do anything. They just think it's like a, a process and they're just, yeah, that's an easy, that's an easy thing for them to do. Right. It's if you go back to this asshole mystery, you know, he just goes through the bar and like insults every attractive girl in the entire bar. Well, now he said hi to them and he's like insulted them. And now he'll just wait to see which ones are desperate enough to come back and talk to him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's gross. That's kind of the game. I suppose you can flip that on them by just send every school that waitlists you a like perfunctory letter of continuing interest. Yep. And then now they, you know, that trick of theirs is now gone. You've disarmed their trick because they waitlisted you and you said, yes, I'm still interested in your school. Thanks. Balls back in your court. Asshole mm-hmm. school. <laughs> like, are you going to admit <laughs> me or not? Let's get yeah. to the point where we start negotiating the scholarship. Cause that's the part that really matters. Yeah. All right. Um, you can join the thinking else that podcast group on Facebook. You can follow us at thinking LSAT on social media everywhere. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at N Fox. Ben is on Instagram at innovator Ben. You can visit strategyprep.com If you want to learn about Ben's live classes and tutoring in DC, you can visit foxlsat.com If you want to learn about my classes, uh, in San Francisco and Los Angeles, all of those classes, by the way, include access to the LSAT demon. So if you uh, are in one of those places and you want to study in a hybrid manner, you can certainly sign up for one of our classes and do the demon and a live class at the same time. LSATdemon.com. If you haven't tried it yet, you should definitely do the seven day free trial. Dive right in, do a practice test, watch some videos. You'll either love us or hate us within like 10 minutes of watching videos, right? I mean, watch a video of Ben's and watch a video of mine. And if you hate us, okay, fine. But if you love us, then uh, we 
intend for the demon to be all anyone needs for LSAT prep. Yeah. So give it a shot. It's free. You can listen to the show all sorts of ways. Make sure you're subscribed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher. Uh, you can also go to our website, thinkinglsat.com. Sign up for our newsletter. Get our show notes delivered to your email box automatically every week. New York City class is filling up. Please go to uh, thinkinglsat.com to sign up for that April 25th, 26th class in New York City. It's going to be a blast. Um, and we definitely made it a bargain, especially for Demon subscribers. So we hope to see you all in New York. Yeah, it was fun last time. A large group and I don't know, just it's a fun. Yeah, fun something event. about the atmosphere. It's fun to have us. I mean, I like teaching with you. It's fun to just have sort of like the banter, you know, back and forth and to see yeah. how you're thinking about it and kind of kick around different ideas. I mean, it's a lot like the show, right? So it's just sort of we're open to new stuff. So every time we teach together, I think we learn something new about yeah. the test and how to teach it. So it's a, yeah, it's a really good time. That was episode 235 of the thinking else podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you don't pay for law school.